and welcome to the Crossing Church Sermon Podcast. Thank you for listening. We're glad you've connected with us. Our hope is that God speaks to your heart in a new way through this message. If you're new to the Crossing Church, please feel free to reach out to us by visiting our contact page or by paying us a visit. We would love to meet you. This week's sermon podcast begins in three, two, one. Well, you know Bob and Jane. They are uh, they're in the waiting room of their family physician. And uh, they're waiting to hear the results of the tests that were run recently on Bob. He's feeling lousy for the last few months, and he's tried every home remedy he could think of, every over-the-counter pill that he could find. All his friends told him about, uh, it doesn't feel any better. He's prayed. His family has prayed for him. His church has prayed for him. Uh, no change, nothing happening for the good. Feels lousy still. Um, finally, Jane says, Bob, you've got to go to the doctor. You've got to go to the doctor. So Bob knows he has no other choice, so he goes to the doctor, and uh, now they're, they're waiting. They're waiting for the doctor to come through the door and give them the results of the test. And you know what that's like. Not necessarily in the doctor's room, but you know what it's like to wait, don't you? You know what it's like to be in the waiting room, uh, to wait for the cloud to pass, to wait for the job offer to come, uh, to wait for the marriage to get better, um, the health to return, the kids to come back home. Um, you know what it's like to be in the waiting room. I know you do. It's life in the waiting room, and it's no fun. It's no fun, but in all honesty, that's where we live. We're always waiting for something. There's always something out there that we're praying for, that we're asking our friends about, that we're, we're anxious about, that keeps us awake at night. There's always something there that we're asking God to do something really exceptional for. Somehow in the process of time, though, we get the idea that the waiting room is the exception. The truth is the waiting room is our home away from home. That's, that's just kind of where we live. That's true for all of us. And you can fit any scenario into that, and they all fit. It's where we wait. This morning, we're going to go back and look at a waiting room in the Old Testament book of Esther. If you've been here the last couple of times I've preached, back in July I preached and, and we looked at the uh, Mordecai in Esther. And Mordecai turns out to be the unsung hero. And I'm still begging you to write to the unsung hero of your life or multiple unsung heroes and tell them how much they have made a difference in your life. They don't even know it. They have no idea the extent of the change they've made in your life. But they have because they've invested in you. And then last week we were in Esther, and it was chapter 4, and we looked at the real hero. And, of course, the real hero of Esther is Esther, of course, but not the superhero like we're so used to seeing in the, in the cartoons and on television and those kinds of things. No, no, this is a real hero, and you can go back and listen to that online if you'd like to catch up with that because now we don't have time to go back. What we have to do is we have to look at Esther in the waiting room of life, what it's like for her. Let me remind you of some of the details beyond what I did already. Chapter 1 of Esther, you might remember, uh, this, is the, this is the empire of Persia running from all the way from India down to Egypt and up into the eastern section of Europe, more than likely. It's a large territory, and there's a man named Xerxes who's the uh, head of that. He is the emperor. He is the king of the empire of Persia. He has a wife, and... Uh, demands that the wife do something that she felt she didn't need to do or shouldn't do, 
I have my pictures of what it looked like. He's at a banquet and he wants to show her off. And I'm not sure what he expected her to look like, but she had the courage to say, no, I, I'm not coming. <laughs> well, you don't do that as Xerxes, because she's around to be eye candy for him and to show everybody else how powerful and wonderful he is that he can attract a lady like this and keep her happy. So she's gone from the scene. Chapter 2, we have Mordecai showing up, and Mordecai has adopted his, his uh, cousin uh, Hadassah, who is also called Esther, and uh, he did that because her parents died, and he takes her under his wing. She's adopted in his family. But now there's a need for a new queen, and so Mordecai sees the chance for Esther to rise to the surface of all that she could become, and so he, he arranges to get her into the running to be the queen, and she ends up being queen. Esther, little Jewish girl. Now, nobody knows she's Jewish yet. They know that Mordecai is Jewish, but not Esther. Uh, chapter 5, we go on to some other things that happened there. But as time goes on, what happens, and you may remember this, is there's a, or chapter 3, I'm sorry, and, and then chapter 4, there's a, a man named Haman who shows up. Uh, you can call him Hitler because he functions in the same category. He hates the Jews. He hates Mordecai. And so he pays, this is the way it worked in that empire, and sometimes, unfortunately, it works today. If you pay enough, you get a law that passes what you want to have happen, okay? So he paid Xerxes. Gave him a large amount of money, and uh, Xerxes said, okay, you write the rule, you write the law, and the law is going to be that in about a year from now, we're going to annihilate the Jews, hates the Jews. A year from now, we're going to kill all the Jews. It goes out in public manner. I mean, there's a, an announcement that goes out to all the languages of the empire. Everybody hears this. And so Mordecai, hearing it, of course, shows up outside the palace where Esther lives now as queen, and he's wearing, he's wearing the clothing that would denote and, and give the message that he is broken. He is in terrible sorrow and pain. And she doesn't know what's going on because she lives in the bubble of the palace. And so she, Esther, sends a friend out, sends a servant out to find out what's going on. He goes out and he talks to, uh, to Mordecai. And Mordecai sends a message back. This is what's going to happen, and this is what you have to do. Our people are going to be killed about a year from now. You have to go see the king and tell the king to stop this from happening. Well, <laughs> Esther's in the waiting room at this point because she doesn't want to go see the king. She knows that if she goes to see the king and, and she isn't called to see the king, then she likely will die. She'll at, lose, at least lose everything. Remember the last wife? <laughs> she didn't show up. At the banquet, well, Esther knows that when she goes in to see the king, he can hold out the golden scepter to her and make an exception, but the rule is, I don't go see the king unless he calls me. Esther responds, and she says, okay, listen, I hear you, I hear the calling, I know I've got to do something about this, and so she says, my maidens and I, we're going to pray, my household, we're going to pray, and we're going to pray for three days, we're going to fast, no food, no water, and what I want you to do, Mordecai, and she sends the message back, is get all the Jews in Susa to pray too so that we together are praying. And, and then at the end of three days, I will go in and see the king. And if I perish, and this is her commitment, if I perish, I perish. Just the price I have to pay to do what's right. Well, she goes in to see the king. And the king listens to her. And in fact, we get the curtain drawn back in Esther chapter 7. And I would read just that chapter to you this morning to bring us back to the details of that. Listen to it. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. She's a, she's a smart lady. She sets it up so that Haman thinks he's going to be honored at this banquet, and it's going to be Haman and the king, and she's setting up the banquet, so they come. 
They're there for the dinner. They're there to dine with Queen Esther, and as they were drinking wine on that second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life. This is my petition, and spare, spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet, because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is the man who has dared to do such a thing? Esther said, The adversary and enemy is this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out of the palace garden, into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in my house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the, church, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A gallows 70 feet high is, stands out by Haman's house. He had made it for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. Your Jewish friends will celebrate Purim in March. It's about this. It's about this. And that's what it's like in the waiting room, isn't it? You come to this just end and everything works out okay. That's what the waiting room's like, isn't it? Sometimes. Sometimes the waiting room ends like that. And you thank God because there's a, a, a great big yes from God and your plea before God is answered and everything works out fine and you're, you're going to tell all your friends about what God has done. But you know as well as I do that there's lots of times it doesn't end like that, does it? No, it ends very differently like that. The clouds remain, the pain continues, the papers are served the company fails. That's what it was like for Esther before this turning point in, in chapter 7 of Esther. She was in the waiting room, having no idea of whether or not it was going to turn for the good or for the bad. She was living in the waiting room, much the same as you and I live in the waiting room through various circumstances of life. Until the eyes of the king were opened and then the Jews were saved, a fact that we celebrate even today, until that very moment she lived in the waiting room, waiting for the doctor to come out of the office and say, this is what I found. Till that moment she lived in the waiting room. And so do we, you and I. That's where we live, in the waiting room. So really what we need to think about this morning and we need to think about profoundly and regularly is how do I live well in the waiting room? If that's where I live, and, and that is where I live, well, then, then how do I live well there? Because I can't escape it. I have to be there. And sometimes God will say, yes, I'll do that. Sometimes he won't. And I don't know what's going to happen down the road. I don't know what he's going to say. But what I have to do is I have to live well. I have to live fully in the waiting room of life. How do I live well in the waiting room? 
I would propose to you that there's a case study in the scriptures that is ideal to look at in this case, and I would propose to you that that ideal picture is to look at Jesus and and learn how he did it so that we can do it the way he did it because he lived in the waiting room also. And the place where he lived in the waiting room is a garden called Gethsemane. So I'm turning to Matthew chapter 26, and I want to read verses 36 through 46 of that. If we will take this and use this as our template, as our model, then I think we will learn how to live well in the waiting room. Because I don't want to just live in fear of what's coming next and the answer that might not be coming or might be coming. I don't want to live that way. And I don't think you do either. And I don't think my, my friends and neighbors and my family will benefit if I live in fear of what's going to come. But if I learn how to live well, oh, that's, that's different. Yeah, that'll influence not only my friends and my neighbors and my family, it'll influence my perspective of the future. So it's all about living well. Matthew chapter 26, starting with verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. What I'm saying to you is that this is Jesus in the waiting room. This whole Gethsemane thing is one of those pictures of somebody in the waiting room, only it's the Son of God, and he lives it out in the best manner possible. So if we can learn what he does in the waiting room, then, then maybe just maybe, maybe we, can, we can live that way in the midst of the waiting rooms that God has for us. That's not only in the picture on the screen, but it's also in terms of the way we'll think it through. There's several pictures, several chairs, excuse me, in the waiting room. And and we typically sit in each one of them at different times. And further, what's really interesting to me, and people have testified over this to this many times to me, we, we often sit in more than one chair at a time. So these are not clean, easy divisions of places, but they represent very, very important portions of our time in the waiting room. I would call one of those chairs the chair called submit. I think that's what Jesus is doing as he goes to this place. In fact, if you go back to verse 31 of chapter 26, you'll see it says, Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. What does that tell you as he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane? Well, it tells me that he knows what's going on. He knows the end is near. He has no, this is not going to be a surprise for him when he gets into the garden. 
He knows that as he goes into the waiting room that what he's, what he's going to do is he's going to do what he has to do because that's his role. And to do anything else would be a disaster for everybody else. So he's submitting. He's submitting. He knows that God will win. Verse 32, but after I've risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. He knows what God is going to do. He knows that God is going to win. But listen, he also knows that there's going to be a lot of blood on the road between here and there. And it's going to be his blood. He's going to be in pain. Yes, God will win. Gotcha. Understand. <laughs> Good. Wonderful. But you know, sometimes you look at it and you say, the blood between here and there, I don't want to pay that. But he knows. He knows what's going to happen. In some sense, I, I like to call this a mental conviction. This is just sheer obedience, even though I don't want to do what I'm called to do. i got to do this, so I'm going to do this. I'm going to keep my wedding vows, even though I don't want to keep my wedding vows. I'm going to be honest on my taxes, even though it's going to cost me a ton. I'm, 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 I'm going to see the doctor again, even though I don't think the report's going to be good. I'm just going to do it, and I make up my mind, and I obey. 605 B.C., before the time of Esther, in another kingdom, in fact, it's, the, uh, it's centered in Jerusalem, uh, that the Babylonians are coming in, and they're invading from time to time, and they're taking people away. Eight years after this, seven years after this, Jerusalem will fall and the city will be destroyed, including the temple, and the people will be taken away for 70 years of captivity. And a man named Habakkuk is looking at this. He knows what's coming. He's seeing what's happening. It's going to get worse. He knows that. Listen to this man. He's in the submit chair in my mind. Verse 13 of chapter, 16 of chapter 3, I heard and my heart pounded and my lips quivered at the sound Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled, yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nations invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He keeps, makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He, he enables me to tread on the heights. That's submitting. That's submitting. It, it's a kind of crazy, um, stubborn defiance that this is what i got to do. I'm going to do it. Fifteen years ago when I hit the wall, I told my friend that all I was doing was hanging on to the promise of God by my fingernails. But I wasn't going to go the wrong direction. I wasn't going to have the midlife crisis kind of thing that happens to so many people in which you turn to somebody else after you've committed yourself to one person, in which you go out and live on a boat someplace because you can't face daily life. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do what I'm called to do. And I may not enjoy it, and I may go home every night wishing I didn't have to do it tomorrow but I'm going to do what i got to do. That's what submit means. And I think that's what we see with Jesus. And listen, it's a good place to start. Don't, don't minimize it, because it keeps you from going off the rails. <laughs> because if you go off the rails, you know everybody gets hurt in that. So submit. It's one chair. 
Normally, we move on and we see Jesus moving on to something that I would call the chair of struggle. And we move to the chair of struggle as we consider the cost because it is going to be painful. And I think Jesus is doing that as he moves further into the garden. And you can see him in your mind's eye as he comes to the edge of it with his disciples and he goes in a ways and then he leaves his three disciples closer to him. But he goes further into it and I think what he's doing is moving into a deeper sense of struggle than he had when he was just submitting. In fact, the, the, the picture is there, chapter 26 of Matthew again, verse 37. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. When? Well, when he moved further in. Because now he's weighing the cost and he's thinking, oh man. And so he begins to be troubled and, and sorrowful. Verse 38, he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. You know, it, it apparently wasn't before that, but now it is because he's going deeper into the struggle and he's feeling the pain of it and he's realizing this is the cost I'm going to have to pay to do the thing that God called me to do. And yeah, I'm going to do it because I've submitted, but, but I don't like the pain. Verse 39, going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he says that repeatedly three times. He says the same thing. Why? Because that's what a struggle is like. You don't come to easy resolution. You don't say, oh, it's all done. Everything's fine. No, I'm going to lift it up in prayer once. No. <laughs> if it's a real struggle, you go over it again and again and again. He's leaving me. Oh, God, don't let him leave me. My kids are on opioids. Oh, God. You ask once? No, you don't ask once. You cry out to God repeatedly. That's the struggle. In fact, the Gospel of Luke adds the detail that, that really gives us a profound picture of the struggle. Here, here it is in Luke chapter 22, verse 44. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became great, like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Imagine that. That's the physical result of the stress that was going on on the inside as he struggled. It's not easy. It wasn't meant to be easy. It reminds me of the Old Testament picture of uh, Jacob, the patriarch, and you may be familiar with this. He is coming back to his homeland and he's facing the next day when, when uh, his brother Esau, whom he has cheated repeatedly, I mean, over and over again, he's cheated the guy. And Esau has sworn he's going to kill him. So now Jacob's coming back with his people that he's developed in another country and he comes to the border and he sends his people across the, the Jabbok River or, or Creek and he stays where he is to be alone with God and he cries out to God. He says, oh God, I can't handle it. I can't do this. I just can't do this. And he emerges from there with a, a, a limp in his hip and I believe in his heart. Why? Because he struggled and that's what happens when we struggle. If we stick with it. If we don't give up, it gets heavy. There's no easy fix. It's going to be painful, take everything I have and then some. I'm afraid. I don't know if I can do it. Esther, that's where we find her in chapter 4. Chapter 4 of Esther, she said, oh, I can't do this. And so Mordecai's messenger says, hey, look, if you don't do this, God will save the Jews, but you're not going to be spared. You and your family, you're down. You're down for the count. And besides that, listen to this, Esther, who knows but that God has brought you to the position that you're in as queen for such a time as this. And so she gets the message, and then she goes on, but she's struggling for three days and three nights, and she doesn't eat and she doesn't drink. 
She's sitting in the chair that I'm trying to describe here. She'll plead with God. She'll get help to, from other people to stand by her. And she's taking her life in her hands. It's a struggle. Listen, if we hang in there, if we hang in with a struggle, and we don't go back to submit out of, out of our, our commitment and our obedience to God, and that's not a bad thing. So please, don't, don't think that I'm, I'm, I'm talking about a perfect progression from one to the next, to the next, to the next. We can go back to submitting, and then we get to struggle, but, but, but hopefully what will happen is as we move, we will move on to something called surrender. Yeah, to surrender. And what it is, it's surrender to the God that I know, I know in my mind, but it finally hits my heart that, that the God that I'm serving is a good God. He's a good Father, and He cares for me. So, so what He's allowed to come into my life at this point in life, man, I can't see it, but there's got to be some good in it because my Father doesn't do things that aren't good for me. So I come to this point where I'm willing to say, yes. Yes, that's what surrender looks like, like it did with Jesus. Convinced that he's the only answer. He's the only way for men and women to be forgiven, that, that only his blood is pure, that only he can die on the cross, not somebody else. And that if he dies on the cross in your place and my place, then we could be forgiven. And so faced with that larger picture of what his Father and he and Holy Spirit have agreed upon before he came to this place, before he got into this Garden of Gethsemane, this waiting room, he, he sees it again and he says, okay, let's go, it's time, the hour has come. That's surrender, that's what it looks like. Has he struggled? Sure he struggled. Of course. Esther goes into the king and she goes in with the mindset, if I perish, I perish. That's what surrender looks like for Esther. If I perish, I perish. You say, wait a minute, that sounds like submit. And I know it sounds like submit, and I, I have to think that through a little bit, but, but it's slightly different in my mind. Submit is doing what I know I have to do. And that's not bad. That, that's okay. It keeps you out of, out of trouble. You don't go off the rails in the process of submitting if you truly submit. So, so that's okay to submit like that. But when you talk about surrender, it's like submit, but I'm doing it for a different reason. I'm doing it not just because I have to, but I'm doing it because I've got a picture of God and a picture of God that is, he's, a, he's a good, good father and he cares for me. And so somehow I can say, okay, okay. You see what I mean? Surrender is different than submitting. It's a different step along the way and it's where you want to go. It's seeing the bigger picture of God. Seeing the story of God, seeing the purpose of God, seeing the glory of God, seeing all that stuff, or getting some glimpse of it, and you get enough of a glimpse of it to say, okay, okay. Here's uh, somebody doing that. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Yeah? Scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's what surrender looks like. It's the waiting room. It's cement, it's struggle, it's surrender. It's cement, it's struggle, it's surrender. It's struggle, it's cement, it's surrender. It doesn't just go in an easy flow one, from one to another. It, it bounces all over the place. But every one of us live in a waiting room. Are you with me? Yeah, yeah. I'm talking about real life here. I know I am. I haven't had too much of it, thank God. Uh, maybe I've had more than some people, but I haven't had too much. 
Maybe you've had a lot more than I have. I've talked to one of you this morning, and you are right in the waiting room of life, and I know that. And others, I will bet that you're there. So that's our waiting room. That's our life. I'd like to just give you several things to remember that might be helpful as you as you walk through that door into the waiting room and you wait for the answer to come to you, whatever the answer might be. Let me give you several things to remember, please. One is, you might be just a few moments away from a good report. <laughs> you know? We think the worst is going to happen. Maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe it's going to be a good report. And what I have to do is I have to stay steady now because... I don't know what's going to happen in a few minutes, but I know that it could be a good one. Esther was three days away from a good report. (laughs) How's that? Three days. Three days of fasting and praying. Three days of crying out to God. Three days of doing what she had to do, even though she didn't want to do it, but she was in a place where she needed to do it, so she's crying out to God. And three days later, she gets her answer. Jonah was three days to a good report. Who else was three days to a good report? Jesus. Three days. Three days to a good report, three days to resurrection for him, and ultimately for you and for me. You say, but, but I don't know if it's going to be a good report or not. <laughs> yeah, I got that. I, I understand. That's why it's such a struggle, because we don't know what the answer is going to be. But listen up. There is an ultimate good report coming for you if you're, you're a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what heaven is, is that ultimate good report, my friend. It can't go on forever in this life unless Jesus comes. We're all going to die. But for men and women who have given their heart to Jesus and have been forgiven, you've got a good report coming. Yeah, it may not be in this life. I get that. I understand that. And you'd like to have it now. I got that. I understand that. But what you have to remember is I've got a good one coming. Here's the good report. Romans 8. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor Angels, nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Moments, moments away from a good report. Here's something else to remember. There's something good in each chair. You know, I've described three chairs. That's, I I don't know, you may want to talk about five chairs. It doesn't matter really. I'm just using that as a picture. I've given you three chairs, and I want you to know that there's, there's something good in each one, something good that God does in each one. And, and the truth is, we don't settle in one chair for, for a long time. It's, it's our nature to move from chair to chair. And, and as somebody told me also, uh, whose wife has been ill for a long, long time, the truth is that we have a cheek in more than one chair, you know? Now, if that's offensive, so I'm sorry, but, but you know what I mean, huh? Yeah, yeah. It's just the simple truth that you don't stay in just one chair, nor completely in one chair for very long. And good news, we don't need to be embarrassed about that. Somebody asks you, how are you doing? You're saying, I'm in the chair called submit, and I'd like to be down the road to the one to surrender, but I'm not there yet, but I'm staying here in the chair submit until I get able to move on. Because that means you're keeping your commitments That means you're obeying, and that's not bad. Even if you don't feel like obeying, that's okay. You do what you got to do. And you ask God to move you on to the next chair. 
And we go back and forth and we submit and then we struggle and then we, then we get surrender and then we hit, hit uh, struggle again and then we hit submit and then we hit, and then we hit surrender and then, that's okay, that's okay. There's nothing wrong with any of those chairs. You move along as God moves you along and you get the power of God and you grab hold of his hand and he'll move you along. But if you go back to another one and say, oh, I'm back in the chair called submit, that's okay, that's okay. You slide off that chair and you damage a lot of people. A third one that I, I would mention is that surrender. That's the best chair. Because that's the chair in which I trust God. That's the chair in which I come to the truth and I say, yeah, so captivated by the grace of God, so captivated by what he has done for me over the years, so captivated by his goodness and his love and the bigness of his plan, the dimensions of his plan, so captivated by, by what he has in store for the future, even if the future is heaven and not healing today, then, then I'm so captivated by it that, that I see him and I say, okay, 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 if that's what I have to do, that's what I have to do. Like Esther, if I perish, I perish. Like the disciples, we have to obey God rather than men. That's right. Like Jesus, into your hands I commit my spirit. I surrender. And that's the best place to be. The very best place to be. Surrender is trusting God. It is not karma. It is not earning our way to something. It is just trusting God because you've got a big enough picture of God to say, okay, okay. And to mean it, not just because I have to do it, but because I'm, I'm captivated by what God's got in process, and, and that includes me, and I, I live with wonder that he's got me in the story, so I can live out my part of the story, and I can say, oh yeah, oh yeah. It's the waiting room. There is a chair that I, I go to when I choose to submit, and I don't want to stay there because I want to move on but I recognize that I have my own set of stuff, my own weaknesses, and I got all kinds of things to deal with, so it may take me some time to move on, but, 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 but I, I'm in a good spot when I'm in the chair of submit, not for long term, but for now, because that's what I gotta do, and I don't wanna do otherwise, because when I do otherwise, I tear the fabric of everybody else's life in the process, including mine, and I bring all kinds of tragedy into my life and others, and everybody pays for it, so I wanna submit. That's all I can manage at the time. And there's a chair called struggle. And I don't like the waiting room, so I struggle. I can be honest about that, too. And when my friends ask me, I can say, I'm struggling. And maybe you'll use the chair image in the future. I'm sitting in the chair called struggle. Pray for me. Because what you pray for me is that Father will take me over to the chair called surrender. And I'll find a home there. And I'll live there, and I'll rejoice there because he's taken care of me. And I can believe that his picture is large enough, his story is big enough to include me, and even what I'm going through right now. And however it ends, that's okay, because I'm a part of his story. Yeah. What you might be thinking about as you think about moving from chair to chair is if you've ever had surgery. Head surgery? Yeah? Yeah? had recovery time after the surgery when they said, okay, time to get out of the bed. And you say, I can't get out of the bed. You kidding me? And a nurse or a doctor or a loved one says, okay, just take my arm and I'll walk you down the hallway. The picture that you can grab hold of, at least I can, is that Jesus is the one who offers us his arm. He walks us down the hallway from one chair to the other 
And yeah, we trip, and yeah, we fall, and I, I get that, I understand that, and we want to go back, I get that. But what Jesus says, look, I'd like to walk you down the hallway. And what you and I are called to do is to say, Jesus, I'll walk with you down the hallway. Just go slow. <laughs> Take it easy. You know me. But get me from the, this chair to the next, to the next. Because the chair called surrender is the one I want to go to. So welcome to the waiting room. Take the waiting room picture that's been filling your mind as I've talked, and it may be one of the things I've suggested, or it may be something totally different. And as we come to the table of the Lord, just say, I'm there with Jesus. <laughs> yeah, he's going to walk me from chair to chair, and he's going to take care of me as I get a whole picture of, of his goodness and his love, and you will see that portrayed in the, the, the bread and the cup that are before us.